If you ever find yourself stuck in the middle of the sea, I'll sail the world to find you. If you ever find yourself lost in the dark and you can't see, I'll be the light to guide you. Find out what we're made of when we are called to help our friends in need. You can count on me like one, two, three. I'll be there, and I know when I need it. I can count on you like four, three, two. You'll be there. That's what friends are supposed to do. Oh yeah. Oh, 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 yeah. If you're tossing and you're turning and you just can't fall asleep, I'll sing a song beside you. And if you ever forget how much you really mean to me. Every day, I will remind you. Find out what we're made of when we are called to help our friends in need. You can't count on me like one, two, three. I'll be there. That's what friends are supposed to do, and I count on you. That's what friends are supposed to do. Oh yeah. Oh oh oh. You'll always have my shoulder when you cry. I'll That's what friends are supposed to do. Oh yeah. Whoa. Yeah. That was awesome, guys. Well done, Alicia. I uh, walk past Ken, who is our resident member from Long Island, and he leans over to me and he goes, she really does have a beautiful voice. <laughs> One day Ken's going to be speaking up here and you'll get to hear a little bit more of another crazy accent, but um, what a delight to be with you guys this morning. I, I was just kind of standing there in worship, watching the band just go off on their own tangent, and uh, my heart leapt because that was always the dream. I caught a couple of glimpses this week 
um, of God making manifest some of the dreams that we started uh, when we started this church. And um, we had a beautiful time as a staff this week, just sitting uh, around in a circle, just talking, just edifying, bringing love. Um, it didn't feel forced or contrived. And I, and I thought, this is why we planted this church. We planted this church to encourage each other, to bring life. Today, as the band stepped out, and if we're honest, what has historically been um, kind of a conservative city when it comes to the gifts and the power of the Holy Spirit, uh, there have been the beginnings of revival, even in Vancouver, um, in, in Clark County and in Portland, but it always seems to kind of get to Vancouver and something slows it down. And that's not to discredit anything that God's done in this amazing city in the past, uh, but when you start to feel uh, worship to, uh, turn a little bit from um, just getting through songs on a screen to worship leaders working in team and sort of deferring and letting God flow is such a beautiful thing. And so I honor you guys as a team today. Thank you for leading us. Who agrees that we have an amazing worship team? We love you guys. Um, and it's kind of cool. There's a, there's a casual uh, life that I just think God wants us to uh, persist with. There was like this boom moment today during worship, and I looked over at Jonathan, our sound guy, and Derek's like praying for him, and he's so caught up in prayer that he like didn't move the volume knobs and stuff, and I'm like, okay, I like that. That was kind of the life of God. We'll deal with that. So just honor you guys, and we thank you so much for what you're doing. We are in a love series, and um, what's the point of a love series if love is not growing inside of us, if there isn't a transformation that's taking place in our hearts. I'm a one-trick pony. Uh, I will constantly preach about transformation because Jesus is not an idol that we worship from a distance, but He's the one who lives on the inside of us, transforming us more into His likeness, as Scripture says, so that Jesus is the firstborn amongst many brothers and sisters, right? Uh, we bear His likeness. We carry His power. Divinity, whether you know it or not, is bursting out of you. It's not just being presented to you because God lives inside of you. He brought you here today. You brought God here today. Uh, there is no longer a dualistic thinking in our relationship with God. It's not, you are God in heaven and here am I on earth. That's an old covenant understanding. Yes, He transcends and He rules over and all, but He also rules from the inside, leading us and stirring us and changing us and constantly, constantly, constantly inviting us into the future version of ourself, the resurrected self, the self that doesn't stress uh, or sweat the small stuff, uh, the self that doesn't um, fixate on criticism, the self that doesn't fight to be liked, uh, the self that doesn't grapple constantly with insecurity, but the self that says, I know who I am, and I know whose I am. I know who I am, and I know whose I am. So when we preach on love, it's not a topical discussion about what we know to be theologically true of God only. It's a prophesying over ourselves of what we know will be true of us in increasing measure as we walk with God and dance the dance of divinity with Him. Um, if you could put that photo of that guy who looks like a 100-year-old Al Pacino up uh, on the screen. I, I, I sent Kristen this picture this morning. I'm like, that looks like somebody, and I can't figure out who it is. So I did that thing where you like look through your hand just at the eyes, and, the, and I'm like, oh, it looks like a really, really old and haggard Al Pacino. It would be like if Al Pacino planted a church, right? Ha-ha, <laughs> <laughs> pastor jokes. <laughs> that man, um, his name's William Booth. Or was William Booth. And I don't know, who's ever heard of William Booth? Anyone here? Uh, in 1865, uh, this son of a nail maker, nail maker, hot metal worker. No, 
in my head this morning, that was the best joke. And literally, I've waited the whole morning to, de- to deliver that joke, and you didn't even laugh. Okay. Um, so, nail maker. Come on, it's catchy, right? It works. Okay. Um, that son of a nail maker uh, in England, he's, he's from Nottingham. In 1865, um, he started something that had a very catchy uh, and lovable slogan. He called the movement that he started the Christian mission to the heathen of our own country. Really rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? Anything that has heathen in the title, other than like a pub here in Vancouver, I'm pretty sure it's not going to work out. So, uh, but the idea was this. He couldn't fit in any church. He had tried to. Uh, he had tried to be in the Methodist church, and he kept causing problems because he was a revolutionary. He couldn't fit within the confines and the constructs uh, of, of a church that was predominantly middle class and actually charged a pew tax, which we're thinking about at Crown and Anchor. Uh, another joke. Uh, I'm on fire today. This pastor's on fire. No. Um, yeah, okay. Um, they, they were charging pew taxes and making people um, only uh, be able to be a part of what God was doing if they could afford it with their wallets. And this incensed them and it bothered him. And he thought, no, there's something better. And coming from an impoverished background, he had a bent towards uh, grace and, and, and relating to God, not on what you had, but what God has. And uh, he started uh, what eventually became the Salvation Army. And interestingly enough, he felt a strong pull and a strong call to pubs and to places where people who were Christian were kind of avoiding at all costs, while everyone else was walking around saying, hey, you need to come through our doors to be a part of something. William Booth was captured by a love for humankind, a love for his neighbors, a love for people in his land that took him out of his comfort zone into starting something revolutionary. And this week, as I was studying the beginning of the Salvation Army and how it starts, and we know movements start a certain way, and then the next generation comes through, and puts their spin on the movement. And before you know it, every great move of God ultimately becomes a stagnant point again until another revolutionary or revolutionaries rise up and re, re, uh, re-engage it again and start to bring kingdom life to it. But when the Salvation Army started, uh, it kind of reminds me of my passion for this church. I never ever want to be a part of a church that makes you feel like you have to come uh, and do things our way for a really long time and then we'll start to consider that you might belong to what we're doing. That's not love. That's not pursuit. That's not kindness and that's not grace. The Salvation Army started at a pub called the Blind Beggars Pub. And William Booth was famed at saying, give me the worst of all men. Those are the ones that I want to go for. Give me the worst of all society. Those are the ones that I want to go for. And I know that, you know, it's not uh, popular or it's not um, politically correct to call people the worst of anything these days. We live in a great age of offense and those were different times. And we can't really say uh, Crown and Anchor is the center for the heathen right now. Uh, but what we can start to do is ask God, what gifts have you put inside of our lives that we can not only be faithful in bringing back to you as worship, but what gifts have you put in our lives that we can use for the love of mankind, the love of humankind? Thank you very much. If you could throw up the quote that I've scribbled this week and been grappling with, please, Kristen. When it comes to God, love is a response. When it comes to humans, love is an initiation. 
I want you to kind of wrestle through that. And what I probably should have written there is sort of, because I'm going to disprove a part of what I'm saying as this talk goes on. But I just want you to, to grapple with those two things for a second. When it comes to loving God, it's a response. I preached about this last week. Uh, the ideas of songs that we bring in faith on a Sunday come from the fact that God first sings over us. Zephaniah 3 verse 17. He rejoices over us and delights in his love for us with the singing of songs over us. Like you think we sound good as a church when we bring our songs. Let's not forget that those songs are a reciprocation. They're a response. We don't initiate the music. God did. And he initiated it over his people. The idea of giving is really a partial bringing back. Whenever we say, hey, be generous with your life, your time, your talents, your treasures, uh, in any capacity, wherever you are in the world, be faithful with that. That's not because we need to initiate something with God that stirs up his favor. No, we are simply entrusted with what he's given us. And we bring it back, partially remembering that we're just an echo and a shadow of the one who's been so desperately generous with us. We defend our faith, but Jesus defends his friends. Anything that we think we're bringing to God uh, that has any sense of love behind it is simply a response that he initiated in the first place, which is quite relieving, guys, because it's not performance that's gonna get us there. It's simply us being who he's called us to be, receiving first. You got nothing to give if you haven't received. You got nothing to bring if you weren't given it in the first place. So God, the great initiator, pours his love on us. Romans 5 says, he pours the love of the Father on us daily. And through the Spirit of God, we cry, Dad. And we belong to a love that pursued us, that chased us down, that offered us everything and gave us all that we are. Isn't that amazing, wondrous news? Yeah, that's cool. <laughs> but when it comes to humanity... We're not called to wait. We're not called to receive something from the world before we give something back. We're not called to play standoff with society as God's people. We're called to be the initiators. And it's kind of uh, a little bit of a trick, really, because we didn't initiate the love that we found for humanity. We found it in the receiving love from God. But I think we live in this disconnect so often. I want you to be really honest with your own life for a sec. Do you live in a dualism when it comes to love? We're all happy to receive the love of God. We're all happy to say, I'm a believer. I've received from the grace and the favor of God. I can put my head up and my shoulders back. I don't need to strive and stress because I'm found in love that chased me and pursued me. But when it comes to humanity, if we're really, really honest, sometimes we disconnect the flow of love that always belonged to itself. And we say, I will stand with God, but I'll stand against humanity. And if you think that sounds outrageous, think about what religion has done in the world. It's created an us and a them. We're happy to taste the sweet nectar of grace, but we're unwilling to extend it when humanity around us is imperfect. We're happy to be chased by God and chased down by His love and accepted eternally and unconditionally in every aspect of our lives. But when it comes to giving the smallest amounts of, of, of favor and grace to people who don't deserve it, we trip up. And so my prayer for Crown and Anchor 
And, and my prayer in transformation for your heart and for mine is that we would not be takers who keep and hoard to ourselves the grace and the favor of God. But something about how we've been favored by Him, something about how perfect innocence has looked at our guilt and kissed us with the kindness of heaven has to start to flow out of our lives. And dualism is all around us. We do it all the time. We go, oh, I I believe in grace. But as soon as someone fails, we condemn them. We live in, in dualism. We say, I believe in your healing, God, but we refuse to pray for the sick. I believe you are immeasurable, untamable, uncontrollable, but we remember him on Christmas and Easter. And there's a flow that needs to start again in our lives that just does not cease. The flow that takes loving humankind as some sort of effort that we conjure up. Plug it in again to your love from God. And understand that agape love, which we talked about last week, the the singing of God over us ultimately converts into us singing over others and prophesying and bringing life. People use this book to cause some separation between us and the world. It was never meant to keep us away from a world that's existing in a lack of non-authentic love. That would contradict its author's actions. If you use the Bible to stir up arguments with the world, and that is your primary usage of the Word of God, you have forsaken the heart of the author that wrote it. The God of love who says the most excellent way is love. And I hope that kind of challenge uses you a little bit because I watch people bicker and bring the beauty of the Word of God into disrepute. Now hear me, there's times to rebuke, there's times to realign, there's times when we fall short of the glory of God and we, we bring back our hearts to God. But this scripture is written for the believer. It's written for the one who's on the journey to maturity in the highest form of maturity. Jesus says, this is when everyone will know that you've really become who I want you to be. You'll love people. And I watched some of God's greatest princes and princesses living in the trenches, fighting and ripping each other down. I just go, why? Is is, is that what we're called to? Is that what the church, you know, William Booth didn't say, I'm going to give my life to looking after self-righteous people. He said, I want to join with the righteous. I want to join with those who are forgiven and those who are redeemed. And I want to go out and love the world. And guys, I think if we're honest sometimes, as a church, maybe we're getting a little stuck, fixating so much on the performance of people around us while the city folds their arms and goes, oh, what are you guys doing? Hey, we're too busy fighting to deal with you. So there's no angst or anger in this talk today. There's just a hope that this could be a congregation that doesn't fall into the same trappings as so many others around the world saying, I exist to fight. No, I exist to love. When we start to believe that every single person carries the image of God, every single human made in his likeness, then suddenly we realize we're no better than anyone else. There's simply been a resurrection through a connection, an awakening that is unstoppable, that's teaching us about the true meaning of life, which is love. Let's go to our key text today, please. Matthew 22, verse 34. 
And it says this, when the Pharisees heard how he had bested the Sadducees, so two religious groups, the Pharisees were those that kept adding to the word of God and the Sadducees were those that were reductionistic. So two sides, right? Uh, when the, the Pharisees heard how he, who Jesus had bested the Sadducees, they gathered their forces for an assault. Let's remember for a second that both the Sadducees and the Pharisees completely believed they were doing what they were doing in the name of God. Prior to Jesus showing us the new covenant and the new way, everything that they were fighting for was valid to a degree. But Jesus comes in this cataclysmic moment and changes the covenants with mankind. The Messiah brings ultimate peace between God and humanity, and he starts to teach a more excellent way. And can I say, even today, uh, amongst religious folks, if we're really gonna go for something, if we're really gonna go for grace, if we're really gonna go for love, if we're really gonna go for truth, if we're really gonna go for purity, if we're really gonna go for the heart of God, there's gonna be a fight. And it's not from the world. Listen to the motivation, some of the words. He had bested the Sadducees. They gathered their forces for an assault. One of their religion scholars spoke for them, posing a question, not out of innocence or purity or hoping to be transformed, posing a question they hoped would show him up. Okay, so they're talking to Jesus and they're questioning him, veiling a question like, oh, teach us, syrupy sweet, right? But the intention of their heart was, we wanna make you trip up. And Jesus, he says this, teacher, which command in God's law is the most important? Now, Jesus had 613 commands to choose from, right? And Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your passion and prayer and intelligence. In other words, heart and soul and mind. This is the most important, the first on any list. This is the most important, the first on any list. We've, we've created uh, within Western culture, uh, especially when it comes to, to Christianity and conservative Christianity, that belief is the highest imperative that we're called to. And again, it's a trick because you can't believe what you don't love and you can't love what you don't believe. So they belong together. But Paul puts it this way, faith and hope and love are left. These are like the big things that everything's built on. Yet the greatest of these is love. People ask me, JD, what is a successful church? And then, you know, you go in a different context and you'd give answers that would please and appease people. Uh, people that are all about the mega would go, if you've got a certain amount of attendees or participants, then you are successful. If you go to people who have a strong heart for social justice and you go, hey, what's success? They'd say, are you giving away everything to the poor? And everything in between. But according to Jesus, the idea of success in our spiritual lives is this, that love wins and trumps everything. It's the first on every single list. And I have to read that and, and I have to check myself and go, is my tone in life loving? Like, has Jesus done such a work in me that I can wake up every single morning and say the most important thing about my existence is loving God with everything? 
When belief trumps love and leaves it behind, that's when religion starts. And when belief leaves love behind, we start to sound angry and self-righteous. And we start to take matters into our own hands and we just discard the very scriptures we're quoting. We start to say, by this you'll know that I'm Jesus' disciples, my beliefs. And an angry tone starts to overwhelm our lives. But when love is the idea of success above all things, we go, truth and grace will always operate together. Kindness and, uh, and authenticity will always be married, right? Is everyone okay? Am I, I'm, I'm fired up. I'm just passionate. Is it okay? <laughs> Do I need to say sorry yet? Because that's my personality. I might roar like from the pulpit, but I go home. I'm like, Kathy, I don't think I did a good job. <laughs> Love the Lord your God with all your passion and prayer and intelligence. This is the most important and the first on any list. But there is a second to set alongside it. Love others as well as yourself. These two commandments are pegs. Everything in God's law and the prophets hangs from them. 2,000 years ago, people asked Jesus to give them the, the, the imperative, the one command that stands above all others. And Jesus gave them two. He's still doing it in your life today. You're saying, what is the most important thing in the world? And he says, love me. And you go, okay. And he goes, ah. But as you do, I'm going to do something with your life, and I'm going to cause you to love others. And, and, and we're, we're more than happy to say, God, you are the ruler of the universe, and I'm going to love you. And he goes, hey, it's never only about loving me. Once you catch my heart, you are not going to not be able to love others. We ask him for one thing, he'll give us two. We ask him for relationship with him, he'll give us relationship with humanity. We'll ask him to help us treasure him, and he'll say, treasure others. He multiplies our desire for him by giving us his desire for them. Nothing's changed. And Jesus was not only the verbal example of this truth. Jesus was the living example of that truth. Jesus sat at the tables that the religious would condemn. Let's talk about religion for a sec. Uh, everyone's got a spin on what religion means. Um, and for some people, it's a positive thing when there's life to it. When I talk about religion, um, I'm referring to something that I have um, uh, called eanity. When you take Christ out of Christianity, but you keep all the methods and the rules, you keep all the practices and the rituals, you're left with eanity. No longer is it about reconciliation. No longer is about redemption. No longer is about grace. No longer is about love. No longer is it about forgiveness. It's about a subservient set of rules that are trying to keep an angry God happy or uh, trying to keep God within explainable boundaries so that ultimately we can have control. Who gave the Sadducees permission to extract and take out the word of God? Who gave the Pharisees permission to add a whole bunch of regulations that God had never instilled in history? When Jesus says, all of the law and all of the prophets hang of love for God and love for humanity and love for self. When he says all of it, the law and the prophets, he's referring to the scripture of their day. They weren't walking around with the New Testament like we are with all the great adventure stories of Peter and Paul and John and all the things that we have learned now in retrospect. 
Everything that they knew about God was about love. Now with the benefit of the New Testament, as we look back, if Jesus was saying it today to the church, he would say all of the law, the prophets, the Psalms, the New Testament, all of it hangs on love. So don't use your scriptures to be high and lofty. Use them to appeal to people being transformed and maturing through a heart of love and hope. God in heaven, God on earth says, JD, watch your tone. It's not that funny, Sherry, my goodness. Jokes. All right, five thoughts and then we're done. Everyone's like, it took him like an hour to get through one. No. Religion never, ever initiates love to others. How do we um, heart check ourselves today against a heart that has love for humanity? I'll tell you how you can tell. Religion never initiates love to others. In fact, our religion draws the lines of us and them. It divides and it controls, and it conquers, and it pushes people away. It does not pursue them. Number two, see how quick that was? Secondly, religion waits till you cross a line before you're welcome in my life. Let's put it in really fresh terms, which may empty our church. But this is the heart of Jesus. Religion says you have to be of a certain ilk, a certain color, a certain variety, a certain orientation before you're welcome to be in my life. I'm not talking about you standing firm on the things you believe and the things that are clear scripturally. I'm talking about you standing on those things and pushing the world away. That is not the heart of God. People say God only resides in perfection. Well, he resides in me. God has never been afraid of guilt by association. These, this is written on our statement of beliefs. God is completely holy and totally loving. God is completely holy and totally loving. They are not truths that fight each other. They harmonize in total godly perfection. Jesus came full of grace, full of truth. Not gracious on a Sunday, <laughs> truthful on a Monday, partly gracious on Wednesday. No, full, teeming over, bursting with grace and truth. When I, um, when I had a big conniption at the age of 30, it was interesting. I, I talk about this often because I think there's a lot to learn. Not because I live in shame, I live in forgiveness. And God is good. And if he can restore me, he can restore absolutely anybody. But I had a friend uh, when I was in one of my worst moments that I called. And I said, hey, can I come to your house? I really need a place to stay. And I just want to have a meal with a friend. And he said to me, J.D., if you do this, 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 and this, then you're welcome in my home. And I felt like saying to him, I didn't ask you if you would marry me. I didn't ask you if you would like stand up in front of the world and say I'm an awesome guy. I just wanted to belong. And I, I said this before and I'll say it a thousand times, often when we're the most detestable, 
that's when we need the most community. When we're falling apart, that's when Christian community can steady us. But religion goes, oh, they're not perfect. Boom. They didn't cross the line, so they're not welcome. I just pray the future of our church looks something like this. You belong before you behave. And here's the trick. When you belong to Jesus, when you belong to loving, spurring faith, a transformation will get a hold of your heart in a way that is deeper than behavioral. Third, when it comes to religion, the, the, the welcome is no welcome as it lasts as long as your performance. When it comes to religion, the welcome is no welcome at all because it lasts as long as your performance. My dad and mom um, are an incredible picture of the tension that I was just talking about, that fully, holy, fully loving. I, I don't know people that behind the scenes, at least in my life, and, and you may have the privilege of knowing people that live like this, but my dad and mom did not preach one thing and live another way. My, um, my desire to be a leader in the local church is primarily by call, uh, but so much of it was by watching their example. My dad never sat at a table and talked bad of anybody in all the years of being in his home. Um, even when the huge things were going on in their lives, they never took it out on us as kids, and it was a beautiful thing to behold. I remember the age of 30, which I, I go back to, there was a time when I needed my mom and dad uh, to maintain their holiness, but, but to love me and not say, you needed to do these five things to be welcomed back in my home. And I remember walking back to them after a, a huge failure and loss in life, and my dad had just done an operation. He ran outside, and he put his arms around me, and he said, son, it's so good to have you home, and I'm so proud of you. And I lived in a retirement village with a bunch of really old people for like nine months, and my mom made me breakfast every single morning and made me dinner at five o'clock every night. And I was working so hard in construction, trying to beat the shame out of my life. But my mom would get up every single morning and say, son, I'm praying for you. This is what the Holy Spirit said when I read the scriptures this morning. And I watched her live out this idea that even though my performance was not perfect, there was room in a retirement village for that 30-year-old. We went back to Australia in January. And um, I went to the, to the bathroom in their home and I opened the door of the room that healed me. And I looked at my life now and the promises of God and how good and kind he's been. And I remembered where I was and something about that room reminded me that no matter what it takes, no matter how embarrassing it is sometimes to stand for people, stand with people, be stood for, at the end of the day, Crown and Anchor could be that retirement village room. It just could be if our love for humanity overwhelms our judgment and our thirst for performance. Fourth, religion looks down, love picks up. If you are looking down on people, if they cannot count on you like one, two, three, If you're looking down at people, not saddened, it's okay to grieve as you watch people make choices in life. It's okay. It's, it's completely okay to grieve. But as soon as you look at yourself as more superior than a human that fails, the heart of God is dissipating in you. 
Why? Because we know the heart of God well. We know that God looked at humanity, disobeying, being rebellious, walking away and said, I'm going to take care of that for them. I am going to take care of that for them and raise them up to be seated with Christ in heavenly places. This is the heart of God. Not this. Not this. This is the heart of God. Sometimes it's heavy to pick people up. My daughter Taya is a good example of this. She's three years old, but she got to bend your knees when you pick her up because she's a big girl. Sometimes it's a little bit of a struggle when she goes, pick me up, Dad. And those beautiful brown eyes are like, pick me up. And I'm like, all right, my back's going to pay for this, but I'm going to do it. A silly example of what we're called to do, even when it's heavy and embarrassing, pick us, pick each other up. If someone can't run anymore, pick them up or point at them and make them feel stupid and gross. Religion will encourage you to do one. The Spirit of Christ will encourage you to do the other. Finally, religion celebrates the failures of people. It delights. Uh, David constantly writes about enemies gloating and roaring and yelling and screaming. It delights in the failures of others. Let's flip it around and talk positive language. Number one, love flows. Religion never initiates love to others, but love flows. Number two, love pursues. Religion waits, but love pursues. Number three, there is no welcome in religion, but love bears and says, I will stay, I will stay, I will stay. Uh, the more mature in Scripture is always called to bear with the less mature. Part of how you know Jesus has done a great work in your life is how you bear with people that are struggling, right? Religion looks down, but love always gives. It always gives. For God so loved the world, He gave His only Son. Religion celebrates the failures of others. Love mourns, love covers, and love collects. There's a big difference between a cover-up and covering. One seeks to keep details away from people's lives for the fear of shame. But the other says, I cover you because love covers a multitude of sins. Not cover up, but covering. It says, I'll protect you because I see what you're called to be. Your future self is calling to you and I'm not gonna let your stumble get in the way of the glory of God. Guys, the patriarchs give us their stories of their existence, right? Elijah and Abraham and Joshua and, and David and others. Abraham was the man of faith. Joshua was the man of courage. I feel like uh, what I've always resonated with as a human is uh, the Davidic thing. I definitely feel like I uh, feel in, in, in my life like the Davidic thing um, always rings true. Like the armor doesn't always fit for me. You might pick that up in my leadership sometimes. I don't feel like, like God wants us to build this like every other thing, right? Um, I love uh, music. I love God's presence. I love organic leadership. I've failed in similar ways. Uh, but, but one thing really strikes me in this context on love when it comes to the life of David, and that's how he treated three people. And I close with this, I promise. The way that David treated three people in particular mystifies me and helps me see that even under a lesser understanding and a lesser covenant, David caught something of a glimpse of the glory of God. David treated someone called Absalom. 
his son who was a betrayer uh, with such kindness. Absalom wanted to divide the kingdom. He wanted to steal what wasn't his. He wanted to rob David of his blessing. And David comes to find out uh, about Absalom's death. And the guy that runs to David to tell him that his son, who was the betrayer of the kingdom, was dead, he, he tells him with great delight. And David is so overwhelmed by grief, he falls over and he starts to sing a lament about losing his son. And he says, I wish it was me. Which is the heart of Jesus. Lamenting at the condition of our rebellion and saying, I'm going to take care of that. David looks at Saul, who was both his leader and his greatest adversary. Saul was the one that he served, but it was also the one that gave him the hardest time and antagonized him and tried to kill him and try to shame him and try to ruin him. Ironically, Saul was the father of his best friend. And his best friend... And his worst enemy, die. And what does David do? He says, weep aloud, O daughters of Jerusalem. He didn't celebrate the death of his adversary. He mourned and he wept. And he said, how the mighty have fallen. Who calls their worst enemy mighty? Who mourns and calls for national mourning and says, cry for my enemy as he falls? Somebody that understands that loving God gives you a deep heart for people around you, even if they're not perfect. But there's a fourth person that he treated in a way that I cannot even understand, and that was the son of his best friend and the grandson of his worst enemy. His name was Mephibosheth, and we preached about him before. Mephibosheth was cursed. Mephibosheth was a cripple. Mephibosheth was the grandson of the most embarrassing story in Hebrew history at the time. In other words, he was a mixed legacy of the best part and the worst part of David's life. And I want to end on this. In your life right now, or to be in some point or in your history, there may be people who are a mixed legacy for you. They might represent the best of you or the worst of you. What we tend to do in culture is justify pushing away people that are kind of mixed to us in terms of how good or bad they've been in our lives. But David made a huge stand for Mephibosheth. And he said, come and eat at my table like one of my sons for the rest of your life and feast. Even though your grandfather was a huge disappointment to me and your father was my best friend, I choose through my relationship with my best friend to see you as worthy of investing in. And that's what Jesus is calling us to do, to see humanity through the lenses of our best friend. And say, even though you'll let me down, even though you're not perfect, even though we may grapple at times, and if we're going to journey together, there's going to be some highs and lows, some bouts and blows. There's going to be some huge moments where everything feels amazing and times where it feels like it all crashes down. But true love says, I see you through the lenses of my best friend and you can feast at my table for life. That is the heart of God for humanity. That is the heart of Jesus for Crown and Anchor Church.